Welcome to Cordell and Cordell's Men's Divorce Podcast, moderated by managing partner and CEO Scott Trout, bringing you information for guys before, during, and after divorce, and everything related to family law. This podcast is not to be taken as legal advice, and no attorney-client relationship is established. Hey, welcome back to the Men's Divorce Podcast. I'm Scott Trout, managing partner, Cordell and Cordell. And here we're going to talk about a new topic for guys, whether it's before, during, or after divorce or anything related to family law. This is a good one. I'm joined by the litigation partner, Will Hallis. Welcome to the podcast back, actually. Thanks, Scott. As always, you know, we can't give you legal advice. The only place for that to happen is when you form a relationship with an attorney, and that can be through an initial consultation. It can be done via Zoom, via phone, in person. Uh, you can do that with Cordell and Cordell. We have offices around the country near you. You can do it on the website. You don't even have to pick up the phone. You can just type in your zip code, your address. It'll tell you your closest location to you. You can schedule that right there with a calendar of uh, available times and slots. And that's where you want to do it. And hopefully, uh, if you have questions after this podcast or any of our other podcasts that we have, that's something you need to do. It's best hour of your time that you're going to spend and invest in getting the right direction for you and your case. So let's get right at it, Will. Talking about a topic that uh, we have not, you know, you, you think of doing this in year three, that we have spoken about something like this, and it's criminal cases in family law um, or versus family law. There's, you know, there's an intersection of them, obviously, at times, unfortunately. And uh, I have my first, my first job out of school was a prosecutor, so I have some familiarity and dealing with some criminal matters. Uh, so that helps a little bit. So let's talk about maybe the to intro it. The easiest way is some of the differences and some of the similarities. And you can kind of go through those so that guys who may unfortunately be in that situation can understand what the differences are and, and where they intersect and how they are similar. Yeah, it's uh, the the sort of similarities and differences is a great way to start. Um, you know, the, the biggest one is, you know, sort of burden of proof. Right. We all know from TV, the burden of proof in, in a criminal case is beyond a reasonable doubt where there's a lot of intersection between family law and criminal law that most people find is kind of either orders of protection. Right. Where there's allegations of abuse. Um, also, things like drug and alcohol related offenses. So DUIs, DWIs, controlled substances, and then also criminal contempt of court. So that could be non-payment of support, violating orders of protection, restraining orders, things like that. Um, it, it, it sort of runs the gamut. But, you know, what, like I was saying, that burden of proof is really where there's a bigger difference between the two or the biggest difference between the two. The biggest, the, the, the most straightforward example, I guess I should say, is in a criminal case, you have that beyond a reasonable st- doubt standard that, that everybody's aware of for an order of protection, which is kind of the closest we come to criminal in family law, it's kind of like right in our lane, is uh, the order or protection burden is a preponderance of the evidence, which is a much, much lower burden. It's actually the lower lowest burden that we have in law is basically 50.1% is kind of what what judges have described to me um, or how they've described it to pro se litigants. So just knowing that, you know, going into court on your family law case, it, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, you yeah. know? And so 
you need to know what the burden of proof is before you go in so that you can assess your case and and what you want to maybe fight versus what you maybe want to try and settle. You know, I um, think you're right that when you talk about adult abuse, orders of protection, uh, protective from, you know, what abuse, whatever, there are different you know, names across the country. That is a big issue where guys saying, look, you know, they're going to prove beyond a reasonable doubt because we're so used to uh, knowing that standard, it's all over, you know, television, we see crime TV and then, you know, it seems like it's, it's a criminal, uh, issue when you're, you know, served by a sheriff, you can be arrested for it, obviously. And I think explaining that, and that's why I think oftentimes I will say that orders of protection can be the most often abused part of the statute or whether it's case law or code, just simply because it's more likely than not. And judges don't want to be that one that makes a mistake and something terrible happens. And so if there's any sniff that something went wrong, they're going to enter it. And that's that's a big deviation of the standard of, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. I mean, with orders of protection, you know, don't get me wrong. They are a very necessary part of the family law court system. Um, There are cases where they are absolutely needed, both men and women. I mean, a lot of people forget that. You know, this applies both ways. And, you know, so guys out there, if, if if you have been the victim of abuse, that is something that is available to you. And knowing on both sides that burden that, yeah. you know, this is what the burden is. This is what I have to prove. This is the evidence I'm going to have to bring um, is very important. If, if you don't know what standard you're being held to, it's very hard to go into court yeah. and, and meet that standard. Not only uh, that, but but evidence, right? Uh, the... the difference in standards for evidence presentation whatever it may be and that actually varies not just from the actual subject matter but it does truly vary by state by locality i can tell you that i you know in georgia one time it's there is no testimony it's uh, attorney argument period they don't want to hear from the clients but just in and of itself the standards the evidence is different than what you're going to have to do from a criminal to a family law case yeah. And that kind of leads into another one of the big differences between family law and criminal law. And that is evidentiary issues and, you know, specifically pleading the fifth, right? We all know that too. Pleading, you know, Chappelle show, pleading the fifth, right? So we all know the fifth amendment allows you to not incriminate yourself, but any waiver, these are some important things to know about the, the fifth amendment. Any waiver of the fifth amendment is limited to that particular proceeding in which it uh, it occurs. It's important to know that, but it's also important to know that a witness's testimony in one case can, uh, where they waive privilege, can be used in a subsequent proceeding. So if you're involved in a divorce case and you're going to be asked questions about allegations of, let's say, physical abuse, okay, that's obviously, again, the most common one. If you're asked questions about physical abuse, and you also have a pending charge of domestic assault, let's say, your testimony in the civil case can be used against you in the criminal case. And so you'll ask yourself, well, should I then plead the fifth, right? Is that is that strategically going to make sense for me? And what you need to be aware of is that many, not all, but many states allow for an adverse inference in family court Whereas in criminal court, we know the court is not allowed to to make that adverse inference. So if you plead the fifth in your family court case, the court can then say, because you didn't, 
you chose not to testify on this issue, I'm going to infer that your testimony would have negatively affected your case. And they can do that. They're allowed to do that. Uh, In criminal case, we know they're not allowed to make that inference. The state has their burden. They have to meet their burden with or without your help. In the criminal case, or I'm sorry, in the civil case, they can make that negative inference. And so it's important to know you may still want to do that, right? And that's a good discussion for you and your lawyer, but you may still want to do that. Also, limiting the scope of the waiver, okay? That's that's an area to be aware of. You can't testify about an event on direct and then try to plead the fifth when you're asked questions by the other attorney on cross, okay? Um, you have to, this is one of those areas where you really need your attorney to, to guide you through that minefield because if you if you say, well, I want to get into this topic, I want to tell my side of the story on direct, but then when the other side wants to ask you questions about that same event, you try and plead the fifth, you can't do it. There, it's just not, you, you don't get to have your cake and eat it too, right? So again, a, a very important strategic decision for you and your attorney to be discussing. It's a whole topic we've talked about previously about the, you know, the, the need and importance of an attorney and to be represented by an attorney just to get proper counsel to ensure that you do preserve the rights that you need and you don't put yourself in jeopardy, which obviously a lot matters in the family law realm, but a whole lot more matters in that criminal matter where, you know, whether you're facing jail time or whatever it may be in a permanent record, it is the right to, you know, or the actual, you know, point of having a, an appropriate counsel to, to instruct you be there when present to ensure that you assert pro, appropriately and properly, which leads into the idea of representation in general and criminal, as you all know, you know, the Miranda rights that we talk about. And, you know, I've been in adult abuse court where they're not represented and they say, well, I want an attorney and uh, appoint one for me. Talk about the differences there. Right. So, you know, we know the Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent. You have a right to an attorney. Okay. That's the big one. And um, at least from our side, right? We're attorneys. So it's a big one for us. Um, In civil court, you don't have the right to an attorney. Uh, You can't request a public defender. If you are indigent, there are certain services that are potentially available to you but you have to make sure that you qualify for them. They have to have the availability. They have to accept you. Whereas in the criminal world, you can be appointed an attorney and that attorney with some limitations, whether or not they want to, they have to uh, represent you. So you don't have that as a right uh, in in the civil world. And so when you have those sort of crossover cases where you have criminal implications and within the civil case, um, it is really important that you have both types of attorneys. Um, You know, this kind of goes back to the idea that we've talked about before on this, where, you know, using the analogy of of a medical professional, right? If if I have a problem with my heart, I'm not going to go to a podiatrist, right? I want to go to a cardiologist. Um, If you have a criminal issue, honestly, you don't want to come to me with a criminal issue. That's not what I do. I focus on family law. So you want to make sure that you have a knowledgeable, experienced attorney in that area of law that you have the, the issue with. And that may mean having more than one attorney. Yeah. Uh, whenever I have that intersection, I, I will always talk to my client about, you know, do you have a criminal attorney? Can I talk with them? And, and working, having those uh, attorneys work in tandem 
so that you have a cohesive strategy for both cases because you need to know like i said should we plead the fifth is this okay if we don't plead the fifth um you know what are we going to do with that so having that that level of knowledge in your representation for each area of law i think is is really important it is. I mean, it's, I was just reading a uh, an article on this this terrible accident and this surgery that went on for this patient for like ten or twelve hours, and they had multiple different surgeons come in during the period of it. You know, one was a vascular surgeon; that was their specialty. That's something that they, you know, it's the point you make is that here's what we do: we do family law, and we may need other specialists. We'll use that word or other attorneys who that is their focus, that is their their knowledge base, and they can effectively represent you. So why doctors do it well they had it right you know they, they bring in multiple surgeons to make sure that the patient lives and gets healed appropriately and that's kind of what we're trying to do i think it's a good point when you talk especially when it comes to criminal cases which because now leading obviously into the next as we keep transitioning and that is the criminal case can have an effect on your family law case in in a number of different areas so it's pretty important to understand what that is right Right. So within within custody determinations. And so, you know, I obviously I'm licensed in Missouri, so I speak a little more generally towards Missouri law and how that applies. But most of these are going to apply across the board. The the sort of really obvious ones are the offenses that there are statutory prohibitions for custody that is unsupervised. OK. And these are offenses that are generally related to children, um, sexual offenses, um, and, and where a child may be the victim, uh, if the child abuse, things like that. So, um, some statutes, you know, kind of run the gamut, but some statutes are a strict prohibition. It's just bright line test. You, you, if you have this violation, you've been convicted of this particular statute, you cannot have unsupervised visitation. Okay. Um, others, there's other states where the court gives strong consideration to those and there's other statutes where the court will say we're going to give a strong consideration to this offense it's not mandated that we require supervised visitation but it's something that we're looking at and so when you're having that strategy discussion with your criminal attorney of do i want to fight this do i want to plead to this what kind of plea deal can we get it's important to know and for your criminal attorney to know so again working with your family law attorney what statutes apply strictly, what statutes allow you to have the opportunity to seek unsupervised visitation, and know when you're pleading to that deal that it's not necessarily just the, you know, the jail time or the fine or whatever the, the consequence is, that there's a potential consequence for a future family law case or um, you know, a future custody case. There's other offenses that have some specific strategic considerations. Uh, these are generally the ones that are more um, drug or alcohol related offenses, you know, DUIs, DWIs. Um, within your family court case, there may be things that, that you do in your criminal case that can either help or hurt your family law case. So for example, um, DWI cases, uh, oftentimes the we'll say the probation or the um, the result of the criminal case will be some sort of alcohol monitoring. And you may think to yourself, okay, well that, I don't like that. Like that's not really great for me as it's kind of a pain, but 
That's something that you can also carry over into your family law case because we can assume pretty easily that the other side is going to bring that up as an issue. And so you can use that monitoring system as sort of evidence of your sobriety, of your change to say, look, judge, yes, I have this offense. It's out there. You can't change that. Right. But you can use the fact that, you know, I have an alcohol monitoring uh, system. It's going to show that I am sober. If it shows that I'm not sober, then, you know, somebody's going to be alerted immediately. So this, these are things that you can uh, show to the civil court that these are protections that are in place to make sure that children aren't being negatively affected by one bad decision. Right. Yeah. Um, same thing on drug related offenses, you know, rehabilitation, uh, drug screenings, things like that, sort of that crossover. And again, it's important to have these things for both cases. You need to be aware of the consequences of what happens if you violate in one of those cases. You know, if you violate for your custody case, it may mean that your visitation with your child is now supervised or is limited in some respect. But if you violate on the criminal side, it may mean that you're going back to jail. So you have sort of um, multiple reasons why you you will be held responsible for your actions. And you yeah. can, again, use that to go back to uh, to your civil case, your family law case, and explain to the judge why you should either have more custody, you know, show your rehabilitation from something that maybe limited your custody time before to where now you can have a more verbose custody schedule where you get more time with your kids because of the things that you're doing. It is a very complex issue when you have a companion criminal matter and a family law matter. Uh, you know, what came to mind as you were talking was I had a client who was assaulted by his wife, took a frying pan and broke both of his orbital sockets. And so they, they pressed criminal charges for assault and uh, ultimately it was the action was dismissed. Just, you know, the attorney she hired was a good one. She was a first time offender. Uh, she did some things, went to uh, anger management and then they dismissed it. But that didn't automatically mean that I wasn't going to use it in the family law case against her with custody. Her attorney right. goes crazy and that was dismissed, Your Honor, and it's is irrelevant and it was relevant. And we were able to bring all that in. So you do have to kind of show there are a subsequent just dealing with the criminal, as you suggest, maybe it is therapy, maybe it is these other steps that you take to kind of position yourself because the you know, they're very different things. The law is different, the strategy is different, uh, they require different considerations, as you suggest. It's just it's one of those things you have to balance. Yeah, it's it's really important to know that success or or failure frankly in the criminal arena doesn't always equate to success or failure in the family law arena um as you said it it doesn't make the information irrelevant and because there is that different burden of proof that that's really where it comes into play that the state may not be able to make their case beyond a reasonable doubt on a criminal case okay so the state may fail in their efforts to prove that an event happened or that somebody had a, a certain state of mind that's that's maybe one of the elements of the offense, right? In criminal law, you have to you have to prove up each element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And so maybe there was one element that they were unable to prove at the level that they needed to. That doesn't follow, so it doesn't automatically follow that in the civil case, we can't show by a preponderance of the evidence that those same things happen right? Because it's a much lower standard. And so 
the other thing, I guess I should say, the other thing is the focus of each court, right? Criminal court, their focus is on violation of a statute, all right? And was there any defense to that violation, right? Was there, a, did you have a good reason why, you know, self-defense, things like that, okay? Um, versus in family court, our interest is what's in the best interest of a child. So there may be an action or an activity that took place that may not necessarily be criminal in nature. You can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, or maybe even the, the act itself is not necessarily criminal, but that same act is not also necessarily in the best interest of the child. Yeah. So, you know, consuming alcohol, consuming alcohol to the point of intoxication at your own home, it's not criminal. Right. There, there's no law that says you can't get drunk in your own home, but there will be a question of, is that in the best interest of your child when it comes to custody? And, you know, what level of intoxication are you? Those all those sort of things, those those questions come before the court in a family court case where, no, it's not illegal for you to do that. But is that the best decision when you're involved in a custody case? And that's yeah. where the judge make that distinction. Um, so it's really important to know, again, there it. it they don't go hand in hand. There's a lot of overlap. Absolutely. But they don't necessarily go hand in hand where, you know, if a client comes in and says, well, you know, I was charged with this, but I was found not guilty. So that doesn't matter. That's not true. You definitely want to tell your attorney about those things so they can be prepared because those very, very likely will be issues in your case that your attorney yeah. is going to have to address. Classic case example, OJ Simpson, right? Yeah. When <laughs> if not guilty. Then the civil case, it's now lived with him the stigma with OJ, whether it's just the facts of the case or whether it was the civil judgment, he murdered that person. That's what everyone believes. But, you know, here he's found guilty civilly, different burden of proof, different standard. And that's used against him. Now, imagine if, you know, whatever it would have been, he goes through a battle of custody with uh, guardians trying and they're going to use that against him, the civil finding. It is just is what it is. It's a classic example. Absolutely. Well, Will, thank you for uh, walking through the intersection of criminal and family and understanding the differences. Really good points. So thanks for joining today. Thank you. Well, tune in, subscribe to the podcast, go to Apple iTunes. You'll get alerted every time we drop one. Also tune into our virtual town halls every month where we uh, gather uh, attorneys from across the country. You log in, ask questions live and get answered right then and right there. And then coming up in June, watch for a special month of Father's Fridays where every Friday we're going to bring new and interesting information for guys to celebrate Father's Day, not just on the weekend, not just on that day, but all month long in the month of June. So stay tuned for information on that, where you actually can get really interesting, really great and applicable resources for dads during the entire month of June on Father's Fridays. We'll be doing it live on Fridays. So stay tuned to our social media for more information. And you can check out our website at CordellCordell.com. So until next time, have a great week.